This morning we're beginning a series that will take us all the way to Easter Sunday called Conversations. And this series is about conversations that Jesus had with men and women that we would say, or, and they would have said in their day, were on the fringe of society, on the margins, so to speak. Now Lent, as we've said, is, is a season where we journey with Jesus to the cross. And so if you're fasting during Lent, this isn't about impressing God with your piety, or this isn't about twisting God's arm or manipulating God into doing anything uh, special. In, in fact, uh, fasting in the Bible a lot of times is not... Uh, is not so much in order to, but because of, or since. Do you know what I mean? It's not so much this thing that we do in order to get this. It's more often in the scripture something that we do because, or in response to something God has already done, or is doing, or a circumstance, or situation. So for us, we find ourselves saying we're in the season where we're wanting to reenact, to, to journey with Jesus to the cross and to reenact kind of and to, and to lower ourselves and to say, God, can this be a season where you call me to repentance? Can this be a season where you expose the, the ugliness or the brokenness in my life that I've not been wanting to admit? And there's something about going a day without food or half a day without food or days without chocolate that really shows the ugliness inside you. And so Lent is an occasion to say, God, what is the, where, where are these, these broken places in my life? But you don't just turn inward, you begin to turn Godward. You begin to turn towards God and say, God, change me. But you know what happens as you turn Godward is God turns you outward and you begin to see others. So this series about conversations is really about all the different people that Jesus was constantly turning toward. See, a funny thing happens when you journey with Jesus on the way to the cross. You don't stop at these luxurious rest stops, so to speak. If you journey with Jesus to the cross, there's a lot of unexpected turns. There's a lot of detours. There's a lot of unexpected people that all of a sudden Jesus is stopping to talk to and to meet with and to be with. And so as we go through the series... You may find yourself identifying with the people that Jesus stops and talks with. And you may say, okay, you know what? If Jesus would stop and talk with even that person, maybe he has something to say to me. And he does. Or, maybe a both and here, maybe you will also during this series find yourself realizing that you and I don't often stop and see others who are not like us. Isn't that often the case? That the world that we create because of culture, maybe because of where we live, the world that we create for ourselves is a very protected world, isn't it? It's a very safe world. We know our little circle. We know our little sphere. But Jesus, if you journey with Jesus all the way to the cross, you'll find that he does strange things like go to Samaria, which we'll talk about next week. This morning, we're here in Luke chapter 5. If you turn with me, Luke chapter 5, verse 27 is where we'll pick up. And after Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now just a minute here to stop and talk about this because tax collectors, uh, I know we have IRS agents and all that in our day, but we don't necessarily associate, uh, we're not quite sure what the gospel writers mean when they talk about tax collectors. Rome had set up the system to, to be such that there were direct taxes and indirect taxes. Direct taxes were always collected by Roman officials. And direct taxes were things like taxes that you'd pay on property, uh, 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 rather land or, or household owners, 
uh, or household heads rather, would pay these direct taxes. And it was sort of this fixed rate. But then they had this thing called indirect taxes. And indirect taxes were over your goods or commerce. Almost like you think of a sales tax, except here's the catch. (laughs) Now you're all looking at me like, what's the catch? The catch was that you could sometimes get taxed multiple times on the same items. Because these these indirect taxes were were collected by different people, not, not Roman officials, but basically business people who would sit at major intersections of roads and would stop you and then tax you on your stuff. So let's say you were taking a two-day journey and, and along the way there were three different stops or toll booths or tax booths. Guess how many times you'd pay taxes on what you were carrying? Three times. As many times as there was a person there. And then here's the other catch about this is the individual tax collector had the right to appraise the value of your goods. So let's say you're transporting a cow and you say this cow is only worth, you know, whatever, X amount of denarii. And the tax collector says, no, actually, I think it's worth quite a bit more. My, what a lovely cow you have. <laughs> so no, no, is this really this old thing? No. <laughs> and, and they would inflate the worth of it so that they're 4% or whatever it was. And we, we sort of think we know the tax rate. Even if it was something like 4%, they would inflate the value of your item, tax you for it, and you knew that all along the way you were going to get taxed multiple times on it. Now, if you think this is a corrupt sort of system because of extreme deregulation, if you will, then there's another side to this that makes it even worse, and that is that Rome called these tax collectors, or, or the, and they said, look, who wants to set up a tax booth outside such and such a road, uh, you know, in Jerusalem or whatever, and someone might say, I do, and another person said, well, I do. How did Rome decide which person would get the booth? Do you know how they did it? They gave it to the highest bidder. <laughs> so that meant that whoever said, well, I'll pay, you know, $1,000 for that, well, I'll pay $10,000 for that, well, I'll pay 50000 whatever it is, and so these individual tax collectors would have to decide up front how much they were going to spend to buy this business, if you will. And then they would pay Rome in advance. So they'd say, here's your, Rome would say, 50 grand. Wonderful. Pay up. And these tax collectors would say, all right, here's 50 grand. And now they're, they're going back home thinking, how am I going to tell my wife? We are out 50 grand. But then he says, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'm shrewd. I can extort prices. I can, I can inflate the value. I'll make this back in a year. So... What we've got is basically venture capitalism gone bad, right? Where you have to pay all this money up front to buy this business. You're heavily incentivized to be greedy or corrupt. And there's no interference regulating your practices. Now, the first century is so different than our world, isn't it? (laughs) So Levi, (laughs) Levi, also known as Matthew, is basically an unscrupulous business person. And tax collectors repeatedly in the Gospels are always looped in with other disreputable types. Why is that? The other disreputable... What's so bad? I mean, isn't he just a business person? No, this is a cutthroat, exploitive, greedy, selfish business person. And the world of the, of the Gospel writers is a world that looks at these people and says, not only are you corrupt... But you're a sellout because you're giving money to Rome and lining your own pockets as a result. So these people are not looked upon kindly. And Jesus all of a sudden says to Levi, 
hey, follow me. Now, it's amazing that the gospel writers don't tell us a whole lot more. I imagine the conversation had to have been more than those two words, but what if it was just those two words? Why would he follow Jesus? Was Levi in over his head and he, like, he realized he had paid too much for his business and he's like, okay, this is an easy out. I'm, I'm going, maybe. Or was there something so compelling about Jesus that Levi says, I'm going to abandon my business prospects here and follow this teacher who hangs around with a lot of sketchy types. But then again, I'm a sketchy type. So Jesus says, Levi, follow me. And, and Levi says, he gets up right away, leaves his stuff, and he goes. And I keep going in the, in the passage with me as soon as I get back to my Bible. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his home. And a large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with them. Now this isn't all that strange because who did Levi know? Other tax collectors. But there's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the legal experts grumbled against his disciples and they said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners to change their hearts and lives. It's difficult to overstate the significance of table fellowship in the first century. Meals together were powerfully symbolic, and not just in the Jesus world. In culture at large, sharing a meal together was something that really you only did with family. And if you included others who were not in your tribe or not in your kin, then maybe it was extended family at, at the very most. And if you just should happen to have one guest who really couldn't trace a mother-in-law or someone, you know, couldn't figure out if they were exactly in your family tree or not. If there was one person from the outside, at least they would be in the same social class as you. What's the reason for that? In the world of the first century, hospitality is built on the principle of reciprocity. In other words, I'll do this for you, knowing that you'll do this for me. And so why have someone over for a meal that couldn't Return the favor. Now again, this sounds funny. In our world, we're so independent. We can go to the grocery store. We can get our own stuff. We don't even know where food comes from. That's another sermon. (laughs) But in this world, it's very significant. It means there's intimacy here. There's unity here. There's friendship here. There's a bond here. And when I do this for you, you'll do this for me. It means our lives are mingling together. Why would Jesus then eat repeatedly with sinners and tax collectors and corrupt business owners? Why? One of the commentaries I was reading this week, I love this phrase. He said, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God like a roving banquet hall. The rule of God, the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about it like a banquet hall, like a party on wheels. And Jesus used images of this feast, bread and wine and home and household images, and used it as a way of saying, look, at my table, the table at which I am the Lord, at my table, everybody can eat. And when you come and eat at my table, what I'm offering you is not just my presence, but actually reconciliation with God. That's why it was so offensive to the religious leaders when Jesus would forgive sins in his own name. Because do you think priests and rabbis forgave in their own name? They did not. 
But Jesus did. He was this banquet hall on wheels saying, hey, I've got the feast. And if you dine at my table, I want you to know what I'm offering you is reconciliation with God. But here's the thing, is when you eat at my table, first you become a guest, but soon you'll become a host. That's the, kind of, that's the way the kingdom works. The way the kingdom of God works is, look, I'm going to invite you to be a guest at this table, a table that you don't deserve to be at. But listen, once you come to this table, you're going to have to be okay with everyone else who's there. And secondly, you're going to take on this culture. You'll first be a guest, but soon you'll be a host. And there's going to be this generosity of overflowing bread and overflowing cups and food without end, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the crowds. All of these stories are images meant to sort of stick in our heads and in our hearts to say, Jesus is the most generous host you could ever imagine. And when we partake of this bountiful food, what we are invited to, to say and to do is to call others to join this feast as well. And all of a sudden you realize, what are we doing with 12 baskets left over? You know what we do? We go and bring others in. And not just the others that you would think to include, but even your enemies. Think of this in the Psalms. The psalmist said, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus says, I'll prepare a table for your enemies. Because after all, you were God's enemy. Jesus provides this most incredible feast. A feast at which we are guests, but eventually to become hosts. When you read a story like this, and it's a familiar gospel story, most of us say, well, you know, I'm starting to imagine who I am in the story. And you know, Glenn, I am just like Jesus. Why do you laugh? I, I love, no, I love this. I love to eat. And, and drink with people that are, that are outside. I mean, I love it. And maybe you wouldn't say you're like Jesus, but you'd say, I'm like Levi. I'm in the world, Glenn. I mean, I get this. I love to eat with those people. You know, a funny thing about love, as long as you refer to people as a category, you don't really love. You haven't really loved the person until you know their name. And you name them by it. It's impossible to love a category like the homeless, the poor, the lost. How do you love a category? What do you do when a category offends you? Can you forgive a category? It only works when it's named people. I'm learning to love John or Susie or... Pete, and I need to forgive Pete and Glenn. And it, it only works when you name people. Which, by the way, this applies, just a little rabbit trail, this applies when you talk about being hurt by the church. The problem with convincing yourself that you've been hurt by the church is you'll never, you can never forgive the church. But you can forgive individuals who've hurt you. You can never love the tax collectors, <laughs> the sinner, but you can love that person and name them. Does that make sense? And so we would like to imagine that we're, we're not, you know, that we're, 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 we're like this. We don't have barriers. We're, we're good with, with, you know, 
But the truth is we're not, are we? I read a really fascinating book about a year ago called The Big Sort. It's written by a journalist in Austin named Bill Bishop. And it's, it, 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 the subtitle is The Clustering of Like-Minded America. And he talked about even just, he was really working the political angle, but he was talking about even from, from neighborhoods and counties, just seeing how more and more people are moving into areas where they can find others who believe and think just like they do, who vote exactly like they do. Who they, you know, and he was, again, and, and I think for him, I'm quite convinced he's not a believer, but he was even talking about how churches have taken on this flavor of being homogenous, where church is where we come to reinforce what we already think. Can I say to you that Lent of all times is a time to shake up what you think you already think? And to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And to be awakened from that. One of the great tragedies of the church growth movement several decades ago was that these experts came up with this idea of the homogenous unit principle. Anybody heard of this? You don't, but you've, you and I have been part of this. And it's the idea that like reaches like. And so you ought to just go to people who are just like you and build churches that are full of people who are just like you because that's how the church will grow. And you know what? It did. And so all of these experts applauded themselves and patted themselves on the back and said, this is so great. The homogenous unit principle, this is how it works. It doesn't matter that we're, that we're not all intermingling as long as you know, the, the, the church is growing, and so we've got the white suburban church, and then we've got the inner city church, and then we've got this, and then we've got this. But hey, who really cares, right? As long as they're all individually growing. Can I tell you that Jesus' vision of the kingdom is where all eat at the table together? It's not the homogenous unit principle. It's not the principle of saying, go and, and let like reach like. If that were the case, Jesus would have never sat at a table with Levi because Jesus, the Son of God, is nothing like Levi. If that were the case, Jesus wouldn't have been able to eat with anybody. And so all of a sudden we realize, well, I guess I'm not really this way, am I? And maybe maybe what's worse is you think, okay, well, I I don't want to do that, so I need to move towards inviting people into my life that are not like me. But do you know there, there are two ways, you, two errors, equally um, slippery slopes with how to do this. The one is what we, you can call irreligion or anti-religion, where you say, well, pff, I don't like all those religious people anyway. I mean, I'm always hanging out at the bars and all this stuff, so who cares if anybody's upset about that? I'm not religious. And it's sort of this anti-religion, stick it to the man, I just hang out with whoever I want to hang out with, and see, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? And we paint Jesus like this rebel frat boy who liked to to have a good time. But that's not it. That's not love. That's rebellion. That's adolescent faith. That's being juvenile about that. That's not love. That's just refusing to grow up. Isn't it? Or maybe you say, okay, all right, all right, fine, Glenn, fine. I, I, I will love others because this is the right thing to do and I should have the sinners at my table, so I'm going to do this. And so instead of doing it out of anti-religion or irreligion, you do it out of religion. <laughs> do you know there's nothing more awkward than inviting someone over to a meal and they know you're doing it because you're trying to? <laughs> you ever been at those parties like, why did you invite me? 
Like, you don't even like me. (laughs) Is this like your good deed for the day? Like, don't do that. You ever read that book, that same kind of different as me? It's, It's a fascinating look at how we sort of try to appease our suburban guilt by doing what we think is kindness, but it's just tokenism. That's not love either, is it? So we can, we can slide into eating, quote-unquote, with the sinners because we're irreligious and we could give a, you know, whatever. Sorry. Um, <laughs> wow. Maybe I have some of that in me. <laughs> or or, or we, we do it because we're trying to be religious. And then it's just awkward and, and nobody's enjoying There's something different that Jesus calls us into. The life that Jesus calls us into doesn't start with behavior. It starts with believing the gospel. The life that Jesus calls us into doesn't start with, oh, I've got to do different things. I've got to behave. The life that Jesus calls us into starts with believing the gospel. What do I mean by that? What is the gospel? The good news This word, of course, was used in the first century as a royal announcement about Caesar. So many of the words connected to Jesus and gospel are words that were stolen, ripped right out of Caesar language. And in a way, you could say the first Christians said, the gospel is a royal announcement that there's a new king on earth. And it's not the king of greed, or it's not the king of power, and it's not Caesar, and it's not. The, but this king is Jesus. But this king is a saving king. Oh, why did we need a saving king? Because there's this thing, this problem of sin and death that's so deep inside of us that it's infected our hearts. We couldn't save ourselves. We needed a king to step in our place and win a great victory. A victory against whom? Against sin and death. And how did Jesus win this great victory against sin and death? Come in guns blazing Rambo style. He comes and lays down His life to die a death that was ours to die, to pay a price that was ours to pay, so that life and all the riches of His table don't come out of some heavenly storehouse. Here, have some food but that come out of Jesus' body itself. Do you see the power of the words we say every Sunday when we come to the communion table and Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. The King who saves us didn't do it by just sort of pulling some hidden resources. He did it by pouring out His very life and saying, here, I'm not just the host at the table I'm the feast. I'm the meal. It costs me everything. What does this mean for us? Say, Glenn, are you saying that it's awesome because Jesus is the friend of sinners and so I don't need to be? Thanks, Glenn. Woo! That was close. It's beginning to feel like I had to actually change my life. (laughs) No. It doesn't just mean that. Oh, I know what it means, Glenn. It means that we ought to just try harder, and if we fail, thank God that He forgives us, right? Christians aren't different, we're just forgiven. Right? No. Again, not right. When Jesus says, follow me, again, these words smack of apprenticeship. 
Discipleship is nothing more than becoming a student of the Master and saying, teach me a new way. But before I can get to the new way, I need a new heart. I would love to learn this new way, Jesus, but, but first I need a new heart. See, you'll never love others until you let Jesus change you from the inside out. Otherwise, it just becomes behavior modification, tokenism, rebellion, juvenile. But if Jesus begins to change you from the inside out, you realize this isn't something I could just do for myself. You know the story right before this story in Luke's Gospel? It's the story of the paralytic whose friends lower him down the roof and Jesus heals him. You think that's a picture for what our inside condition is like? You think that's a picture of Jesus? You know what the first thing he says to that man is not get up and walk. What does he say to him first? He says your sins are forgiven. It's maybe a way of Jesus saying, look, I know your physical condition feels pretty paralyzing. And in fact, it is paralyzing. But do you know there's a condition worse than being paralyzed? It's the condition of being dead inside. And I'm offering you forgiveness of sins so that your spirit and your heart, your being can become alive from the inside. And then I'll say, rise up, take up your mat and walk. That's a great picture of spiritual transformation, isn't it? It begins by being put together and made alive to God because of Jesus. And then a new way to walk, right? It does no good to say to a paralytic, follow me, you should walk this way. Uh, I can't. But you really should. Yeah, I just can't. And this is why what goes wrong so often in church is we spend so much of our sermons saying, you should walk this way. And half the people are saying, but I can't. And that's why it begins by saying the first thing Jesus does is to begin to change us from the inside out. All right. How? <laughs> you know what it requires admitting? Something very uncomfortable. It requires admitting that you're in need of help. The amazing thing about loving others, or loving quote-unquote the sinners, is you'll never genuinely love sinners until you realize that you're a sinner yourself. You'll never love sinners until you realize that you are one. Because until, unless, uh, if, you, if you keep seeing the world as, as good people, and then there's bad people, and there's people who've made really bad choices, and thank God there's some sort of hope for them, but praise the Lord, brother. If you see the world divided up into those who are good and those who are not, those who've done well, those who have made bad choices, you'll never catch the heart of God. The shocking, offensive message of Jesus is that all have sinned. And there's really only us and Jesus. There's not us and them and he kind of likes us better, but they're struggling. There's just us, humans, living in a subhuman way. And Jesus, the true Son of Man, the truly human one. All that language in Luke's Gospel, by the way, is intentional. 
Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. What's he saying? I am the truly human one and all of you have, are less than human because of sin. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees this most offensive thing. They're saying, hey, how can you eat with these people? And Sorry, I'm trying not to spit. And Jesus is saying, <laughs> and Jesus is saying these people, oh, you're not like them, I suppose. No. And Jesus, kind of tongue-in-cheek, says, well, you know, it's only the sick who need a doctor. What's he really saying? You're sick. <laughs> you don't realize it, but you're sick. You, you'll never love sinners until you realize that you're infected with the sickness too. It's like a bad zombie apocalypse movie or something, you know? <laughs> you're like, well, get away from the zombies! And everyone else is looking at you like, you don't see it. Sorry, it's kind of gross. I don't really like zombie movies, but. When Jesus begins to heal us and change us from the inside out, we begin to love differently. You begin to follow Jesus. You begin to invite him into your homes, into your friendships. Everything begins to change. Levi is having his party. He says, hey, Jesus, I'm follow- I know I'm following you, but would you join my party? Do you know when your life is submitted to Jesus, it ends up working that way too, doesn't it? You don't just follow him into his world, but he ends up being with you in yours. He ends up going with you into your workplace, into your schools, into every conversation, into your neighborhoods, into every part of your world, all of a sudden you're saying, hey Jesus, this used to just be a party, but now can we make it a Jesus feast? Something at which you're the host? Yeah, you bet we can. Of course we can do that. The reason for New Life Downtown, the reason our groups are all dinner groups or meal groups is not just because we like food, although we do. It's because we're struck by this idea that the table is the center. On Sundays, we gather around the Lord's table remembering how He has brought us in. We who did not deserve this. We who were dead in our sin. Being made alive because He gave His life. And then throughout the week, we say, Well, Lord, could you make my kitchen table a place where others find you as well? You bet. Lord, could you, could you make our gathering at Chipotle? or Could you make that a place where it becomes a Jesus feast? Yes. Yes, I can. In fact, in two weeks, we're about to launch a new season of, of meal groups, and we'll have a map in the lobby and, 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 and tables for people to sign up. And it's not too late to facilitate one. Evan, find Evan at the end of the service, and he'll talk you through that. But you know where I really want to go by the fall? I really want to get to the point where let's say you have a meal group and it's all New Life Downtown people or whatever and you meet twice a month and you're having meals together and, and you're, maybe you're talking about a book or watching a video or doing a little study. But by the fall, what I'd love to say is let's say once in that quarter, maybe twice in that quarter, you just turn meal group into a big block party and you invite friends and neighbors and colleagues and and you don't stand up and do like a pantomime of the gospel. 
That could be weird. But you simply eat and drink with people who are not, quote-unquote, inside. You heard the message translation of this text where Jesus says, you think I've come for insiders? I've come for outsiders. Part of our goal as the church is as we become guests at the Lord's table, we become hosts of the Lord's banqueting table to others. What if our meal groups 2.0 become this thing where, yes, we have times when it's just us and we gather and we pray and we do our study, but then every once in a while, we just throw it open and it becomes this big party. And it's just a time to let other people know there's a feast we've been welcomed into. And they're welcome into it as well. Amen? Could you imagine that? Do you imagine the change that would happen in our lives as a result? A lot of times at church, we kind of have our sequence of things as believe, then belong, then become, right? We say to people, hey, here's, a, here's some doctrine, believe this. Then we want to help you belong. Check out our small groups. Nothing wrong with that. And then become. Hopefully you can become like Jesus. But I wonder, I just can't help but wonder if in the Gospels, Jesus flipped a couple things around. And he invited people to belong first. Come and eat with me. Come and know that there's dignity to your life. Come and know that I see you despite the shame that you carry yourself. Come and know that even though you don't think that you're part of my tribe, you, you are. Belong. And as you belong, something begins to happen and you say, well, who is this man who even forgives sins? Who is this person? You begin to believe. And somewhere along the way, you begin to become more like him. I wonder if this is something to chew upon, to pray about, to say, God, how can I move beyond my tribe? How can I move beyond my people? How can I move beyond... You know, we talked a few weeks ago about friendship and the importance of friendship and the importance of having people that, that we truly can walk through life with. That is important. But do you know everything is this tension, isn't it? On the one hand, we do need true friends that are like us, that, 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 are, that are following Jesus the way we are. And yet, there also needs to be part of our lives where we're saying, who is at your table that you wouldn't normally invite at your table? Maybe a start is, who are you talking about at your table? <laughs> Do you know, it's shameful the way Christians talk about other people sometimes. And I don't mean the gossip thing. I mean the way we talk about the quote-unquote, the world. Right? Christians gather together, and our very table doesn't reflect the generous host. It reflects hatred and fear and degrading talk and people of other religions and other nationalities and other political parties. And here we are sitting at Jesus' table. How in the world are we going to invite others to eat with us if we can't even speak nicely about them at our own table when they're not there? We need a heart change, don't we? We need to be invited to the Lord's table again. And let's do that exact thing this morning. Would you bow your heads? Would you right where you are begin to confess to the Lord and say, God, I need your help. 
I want to love people, but I need it to happen from my heart. I need it to happen from the inside out. God, would you let your grace transform me again? Lord, would you point me to the cross? Help me to believe in the gospel again. To see your grace that has been poured out on me. Just begin to pray those things quietly where you are.